Good morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 still. And we're at verse 57. So in my defense, there's a lot of verses in chapter 1 of Luke. I'm not just going that slow. And we're going to read verses 57 down through verse 66. Luke, who is the historian here recounting the story of the nativity of Christ, begins with describing not only the events surrounding the birth of Christ, but also the one who was to be his forerunner, John. And in our text today, in verses 57 through 66, we read about the birth and naming of this forerunner. So Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 57, Luke the historian writes, Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered. And she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they called him Zacharias, after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. And they said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. And his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God. And fear came on all that dwelt round about them, And all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are thankful again to come together as a body of believers to worship you to praise you as the God of grace, to thank you for the men and women of ages past who have walked by faith and not by sight and who have passed along the faith through the generations to us today. And we are called to, with the same clarity, boldness, and conviction, to pass along that faith to the succeeding generations. And we thank you that you've given to us your word that guides us as we do so. So I pray that as we look to your word this morning, that our hearts would be encouraged and that most importantly, your name would be exalted. For we ask it in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. The story before us in verses 57 through 66 is a rather simple story. In fact, as I was sitting down studying it and reading through it this past week, it kind of crossed my mind. This is a rather ordinary event apart from a couple of extraordinary moments within the story. And so I was thinking, should I just kind of breeze through these verses and get more to verses 67 all the way down through verse 80, where Zacharias prophesies and praises the Lord? But there still is some stuff in verses 57 through 66 that I don't want us to miss by just flying over super fast. And so I thought we should look at the birth of John the Baptist in closer detail. 
One of the songs that we probably know quite well, and most of us maybe know them by heart. In fact, it was one of the first songs my mom taught my brothers and sisters and I when we were homeschooled, is the song, Trust and Obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. A song that we can sing with ease, but probably apply with great difficulty. And I think the reason is because often our faith is weak and our flesh is strong. That is to say, we don't trust because that's what faith is, it is trust. And often we don't obey because our flesh is bucking against the spirit within us. And so it can be easy for us to look at the faults of somebody else, like a a Zacharias, and say, well, if I had been there, and I had seen an angel of the Lord who told me in my old age that my wife was going to have a child, I would have believed. But I think that Zacharias really is very indicative of all of us. That is to say, his lack of faith, his unbelief in the promise of God, is not unlike ours. And I think that frequently we give ourselves a pass while we are quick to condemn others and their lack of faith or lack of obedience. I think we can almost, in a sense, become pharisaical, become like a Pharisee, when we look at other people's mistakes and we point them out very quickly, while we want other people to extend to us grace. Zacharias is really displayed before us with all of his warts, but we also see how he is restored, in a sense, because he trusted and he obeyed following the chastising, of course, of the hand of God. So these verses, I think, not only serve to tell us about the events surrounding the birth of John the Baptist, but I think they serve to be instructive for us of what it looks like, ultimately, maybe to fail, like the first verses of, the opening verses of chapter one, but then to get right back up and to rise again and to trust and obey. So I believe that this morning our task before us is to look at these verses and that our call is to trust and obey God. And that when we do act with trust, when we walk in obedience, we will result or see the result of God's blessing and ultimately God's great glory. So that is what I believe we're going to see this morning as we look at these verses. And I believe Luke records for us through the life of John and the birth, excuse me, through the life of Zacharias and the birth of John, that there are four reasons, I think, that we can look here in this text that show us that we must trust and obey God. And the first one is this. The first reason is this, because God, because of God's word. We trust and obey God because of his word. Why do I say that? Well, look at verse 57. Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered. She is not going 41 weeks. She's not going 39 weeks. She's going 40 weeks. The full time came. Nine months had passed. And this old woman, who believed she might never have a child ever, comes to full term with the baby in her womb. Now, unlike today, she did not have any access to having an ultrasound. She didn't have an anatomy scan. She didn't have any of that. We just had uh, an anatomy scan done two weeks ago with our third, and it's a little girl that I've been longing for, (laughs) and we got to see her face, 
And we got to see her hands. And we got to see her feet and her arms. Like, there's just so many wonderful things about her. And I'm absolutely in love with her already. But Elizabeth didn't get to see any of that. Elizabeth has no idea, ultimately, whether or not she has a boy or a girl, other than she has the Word of God. That God had told her husband, you will become pregnant and you will have a son. And that would be amazing in and of itself. But the Lord even goes further and says, and that son you will name John. You will name him John. So for nine months, Elizabeth is going through all of the joys and the pains and struggles of bearing a child. And finally, the time comes for her to be delivered. And we read that when she gives birth, she brings forth not a daughter, but a son in fulfillment of the word of God. Elizabeth did not know experientially until the moment her son was born that it was a boy. She had the word of God. And Zacharias, of course, had lacked belief or faith in the word of God when God gave it to him. But when Mary had come to visit Elizabeth, she knew already because she believed the word of God that the baby that leapt in her womb was also leaping in her womb as a sign of the one who was in the womb of Mary. So she believed already the word of God. And now when she gives birth, In a sense, her faith becomes sight. She sees the fulfillment of the promise of God in the birth of her son. She believed. And often, our belief wavers. Because in our enlightened age, in our very rational age, in our our rational world, we want to have proofs for things. We want to see or verify with the scientific method that what we're believing is true. And some people react to that as Christians and they say, well, faith in God is simply a leap in the dark. You you cannot have any kind of reason or rationality in order to have faith. But that's not true. God gave Elizabeth a very rational reason to believe his word. And ultimately, it's based in the fact that his integrity is sure. God never lies. It It would be unreasonable for her to believe that a capricious God... A lying God would say one thing and actually mean it. That would be irrational. If God had demonstrated over and over again that he said, hey, you're going to have a son, and then nine months later, everybody always is having the opposite of what they're told. And then he says to her, you're going to have a son, and she's like, I believe it completely. That would be irrational. But God has demonstrated over and over and over again that in keeping with his pure, holy, righteous character, that everything he says is right and true. And she has hundreds upon hundreds of years of illustration of that reality, that what God has said is true. So she believed it. It's a rational faith that we have as Christians. So when somebody comes to you and says, that whole Christianity thing is just a leap of faith in the dark, the ultimate truth, science. The ultimate truth is anything that we can verify with our rational minds or with logic. Be careful, because they want somehow to pit God as a logical, rational, consistent being 
with our finite, fallen, degraded minds. For Elizabeth, she knew that God's word is sure. And frankly, I believe that we trust and obey God, number one, because his word is sure. Which means, regardless of how I feel about God's word, God's word must be preeminent in my thinking. Oftentimes, Christians will try to dilute God's word because in their minds it doesn't work or it doesn't make sense. So, for example, I've mentioned this guy before, but a guy named Rob Bell has written a book about 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, saying that there's no such thing as hell and that even though the Bible talks about hell and things like that, it's really just this metaphysical, uh, metaphorical even reality that ultimately we have kind of blown out of proportion. God is a God of love, and everybody is God's child, and everybody will go to heaven. They want to somehow take the clear teaching of Scripture and twist it so that it doesn't say what it actually says, and it doesn't mean what it actually means. We as Christians, I believe, have to have an unwavering, unshakable conviction that the Word of God is sure. In the 1700s and the 1800s, and then in the 20th century, um, the thinking of, of many people who claim to be Christians is that this book is not true, that it's not, in fact, the actual Word of God. I'm currently taking a class at the seminary that I attend, and it's all about liberal theology. And the hallmark of liberal theology is that this book is just an ordinary book with, written by fallen human beings that has lots of contradictions, lots of uh, false teachings within it, lots of backwards teaching, things that we can give them a pass for because, frankly, you know, 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, they didn't have all the scientific enlightenment that we have in our day. And so we can give them a pass that some of what they believed really was just ancient myth because they had no other explanation for how things worked. But we know for a fact now, the liberals said, that this is just a collection of guys who at their time and in their specific context wrote down things that they thought were good, ethical, and right, but ultimately were a little misinformed. Now we have all of the truth, and ultimately truth is found in doing the right thing and making sure that humanity flourishes. That was what they were teaching, and unfortunately, we're starting to see that in Christianity even today, where people are saying, well, really, the Bible's not about the grand story of redemption and the great glory of God. It's really more about making sure that poor people are fed, making sure that, or that poor, poor people are fed and clothed and have homes and things like that, and that we're making sure that the less fortunate in society are, are essentially cared for, things like that. It's not so much about the atonement. It's about following the ethic of what Jesus taught, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Well, of course those are all good things. Of course it's good to go make sure that poor people are fed and have clothing and things like that, but that is not at all the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in fact, when we look at the Reformation in our Sunday school hour, and particularly one man who is a precursor to that, you will find that one of the things they were combating for was the true gospel, so what we as Christians have to do, I'm saying all of this to say, what we as Christians have to do is to have an unshakable resolve in the fact that this is the word of God. It's inspired, it has, which means it comes from God, it's breathed out by him. It's inerrant, it contains no errors whatsoever, it does not contradict itself, and that this book is the sole basis of our authority for everything we do. 
Anything we do here in this church has to be based on this book. Not my opinion, not deacon's opinions, not any other one else's opinions. It has to be based upon the word of God. And so our trust and obedience is based first and foremost on the word of God, and Elizabeth did that. Zacharias did too, but we'll get to him in just a moment. Here's the second reason I believe we must trust and obey God here, is, is, is God's kindness. Is God's kindness. Notice in verse 58, Elizabeth brings forth this son in fulfillment of the promise of God, and it says, when her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. This woman, for years and years and years, believed she would never have a child. And all of her friends probably felt very sorry for her. Because in her society, if she had no heir to offer to her husband, that means that when she and her husband got old, there was nobody to care for her and him. That means that often, most of the people, rightly or wrongly, would have assumed that somehow the judgment of God was upon her and her husband. Because clearly, the blessing of God is in the giving of children, and that's the only way God blesses people. And yet here, her neighbors hear that this woman, in her old age, much like Sarah of the book of Genesis, gave birth to a son. And they understood it as the kindness of God. For notice what Dr. Luke says here as the historian. He's writing these things down. And again, this is God's inspired word. Here's what he says. They heard how the Lord had shown great mercy. This wasn't just a fortunate act where they said, wow, what a coinkadink. They were able to get pregnant in their old age. Boy, that was lucky. No. They understood this to be the act of God and the mercy and kindness of God. And what was the result? It says they rejoiced with her. They rejoiced with her. And frankly, I believe that that is a very instructive thing for us. Ought we not to rejoice when we see the mercy and kindness of God on display in other people's lives? Should we not? Should we not be wonderfully joyful and excited when God does something wonderful, merciful, and kind to somebody else? Oftentimes, that isn't the case because sometimes somebody has something that we thought, boy, I really would like that. I'd love to see the kindness of God doing that in my life. I'd love to see the mercy of God extending that to me in my life. And so when somebody else seems to be more fortunate and blessed than me, my natural tendency in my flesh is to bristle at that because I want that. It's a very selfish attitude. And yet here, Elizabeth's friends recognize that God has been kind to her and they rejoice with her. And I believe that God's kindness brings to us joy. I believe that that's what that does. So that is the second reason that we must trust and obey God because God is a kind God. God only gives good gifts to his children. What does Jesus say when he's, when he's telling his disciples to pray? Is God going to give you, when you ask for bread, is he going to give you a rock? When you ask for food, is he going to give you a snake or a scorpion? No. God is a good God, and he gives good gifts to his children. And sometimes those good gifts are not exactly what we believed they would be. We believe his good gifts are always to give us some kind of prosperity. But sometimes God's good gifts are to take away those unnecessary things in our lives that are hindering us from running our race. 
In either case, God's kindness should always bring us joy. And I believe that that's what happens in the case of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Number three, I believe we trust and obey God because of his blessing. Because of his blessing. So John is born. And according to Leviticus chapter 12, which we won't turn there, but in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Moses lays out in the law the requirement of what a Jewish woman and a Jewish man were to do, a husband and wife, a mother and father, what they were supposed to do when their son was born. And in Leviticus chapter 12, we read that after seven days... On the eighth day, the son was supposed to be circumcised, and this was to be done primarily, and in practice, by the father. The father would perform the circumcision. And I'm very thankful that that is not the case for today. After those, that eight day, there was another 33-day period in which the woman was supposed to be ceremonially unclean, and so she was supposed to hide herself away. And then after that period, they would go and present an atonement offering and a burnt offering to the priest. But here we read that on the eighth day, in a fulfillment of the, the requirement of the law of Moses in Leviticus chapter 12, they came to circumcise John. And circumcision, if you remember from Genesis chapter 17, was a sign of the covenant that God had given to Abram where he said, this shall be my sign. This shall be the sign of my covenant to you. You shall circumcise the foreskin of your flesh, and this will be a reminder to you of my covenant with you. And if you refuse to do that, you are cutting the covenant off of yourself. So have this sign of the covenant on you. And, and John and excuse me, and Zacharias and Elizabeth do that to John. So it comes to verse 59. They come to circumcise the child. And apparently, as was the custom, this was not required in the Old Testament law, but it appears that this was the custom in ancient Near East Jewish culture that at this point was when they would name the son. So all the family gathers around, all the family, the neighbors, the friends, and here is this great occasion where Zacharias is performing the cultural and ritual rite requirement of the Old Testament law of Moses, and to do this in remembrance of the covenant of God to his people. They gather around, and at this point, Zechariah still can't utter a peep. And in fact, as we'll see in a moment, it seems as though he couldn't hear very well either, if at all. So they're gathering around, and there's Zechariah, and he performs the sign of the covenant on his firstborn son. He can't speak. Apparently he can't hear. And so all the people, hoping to be a blessing to Elizabeth, knowing that ultimately it was the responsibility of the father and the husband to name the child, but he can't, they assume at this point, don't worry, Elizabeth, we'll take care of all the legal stuff. We understand that, that little Zacharias Jr. here is going to be a wonderful blessing to your family. So we'll take care of that. We understand Zacharias can't do this. So we'll take care of all the details surrounding little Zacharias Jr. And Elizabeth says, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. No, no. His name is not Zacharias. His name is John. And immediately, everyone in the room goes, what? John? 
Why John? What was significant about the name John? The name John means God is gracious. So, of course, I mean, I can understand that, but culturally, this doesn't make sense. Elizabeth, people in our culture don't just randomly come up with a name. That, they, they take a name that's in the family tree. That name's not in your family tree. What are you doing? John? Don't you want it to be Zacharias? Doesn't that make more sense? This is your firstborn son, and probably considering your age, your only son. Don't you want him to bear the name of your husband so that when he gets married, he can continue to perpetuate the family tree? What are you thinking? And so, of course, they're thinking this doesn't make sense. Elizabeth is kind of taking advantage of her poor mute husband who cannot say anything at this point. But he's the man of the house. Ultimately, it's his responsibility culturally to name this son. So, Elizabeth, you hold on a second. And it says there in verse 64, excuse me, in verse uh, 62, they made signs to his father what he would have him called. This suggests here that he not only could not speak, but he probably could not hear for some reason. At some point, God was removing even the very ability for him to hear. So he's sitting in blessed quietness, watching the agitated faces, not entirely certain what's going on. And they come to him, and they, and they start signing, and they say, Zacharias, don't you want to name your son after yourself? And here, Zacharias probably remembers nine months previous to this, wherein he was visited by a messenger of God. And that messenger had told him, your wife in her old age will bear a son and you will name him John. And Zacharias, with pain in his heart, recalls his unbelief. Where he says, how, is, how do I know that this is really going to happen? Prove to me, angel from God, prove to me that this will in fact happen because nobody in their old age apart from antiquity where we hear of the story of our father Abraham and Sarah and them having a child in their old age, besides that, that hasn't happened. And frankly, we haven't seen miracles. We haven't heard a prophet from God. We haven't seen any kind of new revelation from God for 400 years. Why should I believe you now? Zacharias acted in unbelief. To which that angel had responded to him, I am Michael, who, or I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. How dare you question the word of God? You will be mute until you see these things fulfilled. But wait, until you see these things fulfilled. Zacharias remembers his unbelief, but then perhaps it crossed his mind. What if this is, again, my second test? And he quickly motioned to them, get me a tablet to write on. And they brought him a tablet. And he wrote down these words. His name is John. Not, his name will be John. Not, I want his name to be John. His name is John. 
Zacharias faithfully acted in belief of the word of God and finally obeyed what God had said, which was namely to name his son John. And he recognizes this is not him naming this child. This is Almighty God naming this child. Which is why he wrote, his name is John. And the people, when they see that tablet on which Zacharias had written, his name is John, it says they, they marveled. What? Why? But their marvel was about to be increased for in verse 64. After perhaps the last stroke of the writing utensil on the tablet happens, Verse 64 says, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. Zacharias, in obedience to God's word, proclaimed the proper name of his son. And God blessed him for his obedience. This, I believe, is in fact often what God does for us when we obey. When we act in obedience to his word, God blesses. And just because you messed up something in your life does not mean that you are somehow irredeemable and unable to experience the blessing of God should you once again turn to trust and obey. Zacharias trusted God and when the second test crossed his path, he trusted God with a faithful obedience and God blessed him and restored to him his ability to speak. And when that ability to open his mouth presented itself once more, this time he didn't utter words of disbelief. He didn't utter words in which he questioned the word of God. This time the very first words that come out of his mouth when he finally is restored is that he spoke praising God. That's his response, to praise God. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God blessed Zacharias and Elizabeth with a son, and they praised him for it. But ultimately, God's blessings are surrounding Christ because that's who John is pointing to. John is about to come pointing to the Messiah, the coming Messiah. And Zacharias praises God because God has been kind to him. God has blessed him. And what ends up happening and I believe ultimately is the fourth reason why we must trust and obey God, is that God's glory ends up being on display. For when these people see that him who had been dumb for nine months, after he wrote down, his name is John, his mouth opens and he immediately doesn't even say, Elizabeth, I have so much to tell you. He doesn't turn to his family and friends and say, let me tell you what has happened. He immediately begins by praising Almighty God. And what happens, according to verse 65, is then fear came on all who dwelt around them. 
When you see the working of God, there is a proper reverence and fear that will naturally come. That happens repeatedly in the scriptures, over and over again. When God acts in a way that is transcendently obvious, it's him. The people react in fear. And in fact, that has actually been the case over the course of the gospel according to Luke. Back in verse 12, we read that when Zechariah saw this angel Gabriel, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. And then in verse 30, when Mary hears this angel announce that he has come to see her and that she is blessed, she's troubled at his saying, and the angel has to tell her, do not fear. And then when shepherds are abiding in their field, keeping watch over their flock by night, the angel of the heavenly hosts is before them. And the scripture says they were sore afraid. And when this child of Mary's was to be born, Often he would do things that would invoke fear in the hearts of the people. For example, in Luke chapter 7 and verse 16. After Jesus has risen, the son of a widow who had died. And Jesus had said to that young man, Young man, I say to you, arise. Verse 15 says, So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. And what happens in verse 16? Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God. This is something Luke emphasizes over and over again, that when an act of God happens, people fear. Where is the fear of God in us now? I fear that often we view this book less than as supernatural as it is. And we assume that since we don't see dead people raising to life and we don't see sick people getting immediately healed or blind people seeing or dumb people being able to speak again, that somehow we don't have anything to be afraid of anymore. There's no need for a a holy reverence, a holy awe of who God is. Nevertheless, God's people, when they see him working, when they see his glory on display, there's a holy reverence that comes. I believe when we stand before God, while we will see our Abba Father, while we will see the one whom having not seen on this earth we have loved, there will be a wonderful relationship that we will have with God, but I do believe that there is a healthy reverence and fear we will see when we see him. For these people, they saw the act of God in restoring Zacharias, his speech. And when Zacharias immediately starts praising God, they understand this is God. There's no other explanation for this. And it says fear fell upon them. And these sayings, they started spreading it far and wide. The Pony Express was going. All these sayings were discussed throughout the hill country of Judea. There is a guy named Zacharias who couldn't talk, and after he named his son John, he could speak again. It was an act of God. But most importantly, in verse 66, all those who heard them kept this in their hearts. They're pondering these things. There is something different about this situation, for they said, what kind of child will this be? The the events surrounding his birth are astounding. 
And ultimately, it's because of this last phrase in verse 66 that I think our trust and obedience of God is because of his glory, for it says the hand of the Lord was with him. It was obvious. As John grew, as the stories about his birth happened, as he goes into the wilderness and prepares for his ministry of preparing the way and proclaiming the way of the Messiah to come, people understood that this was no ordinary person. This is a prophet of God who has come. And he is fulfilling the work of God. And he can only do that if the hand of God is upon him. God's glory was clearly on display in this story. And as simple as this story may seem, ultimately it's a model for us of whether or not we will trust and obey God because we know his word is sure. What God has said is true. God's word, as we sang, God's word shall stand forever. The Bible shall prevail. God's word shall stand forever. His truth shall never, never fail. We trust and obey God because of his kindness to us. It brings to us an everlasting joy. We trust God because of his blessings. They will abound in our lives, and most notably, they abound in Christ. And we trust and obey God because his glory is on display through us when we do. So I close with two questions. The first is this. Have you believed in the promises of God's word regarding Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. Because ultimately, the story of John isn't about John. The story of Zacharias is not about Zacharias. The story of Elizabeth is not about Elizabeth. It's about God sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save sinners of whom each of us could rightly say we are the chief. Have you recognized your sinfulness before God? And cried out to him saying, Lord, you are holy. Your glory is clearly on display. And I am a sinner who deserves nothing short of your eternal wrath. But Jesus Christ is the one to whom I cling. And that the Apostle Paul says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead. The assurance is you will be saved. Will you trust in Christ to save you from your sins? For there is no other way. And the second question I have is for those of us who have, those of us who have embraced Christ, will you continue to trust and obey? Because there really is no other way to be happy in Christ than to trust and obey. Let us pray. I thank you, Lord, that you've given to us examples in your word of people who failed because most notably for me, those are the ones I identify with. For I fail seemingly moment by moment. And I'm sure many in this room feel the same way. So I thank you that you've given to us illustrations of people who failed nevertheless, dusted themselves off, got back up, and trusted and obeyed. I pray that there, if there is anybody in this room who has not trusted and obeyed the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ to believe in Jesus, to be saved from their sins, Lord, I beg of you to save them and to bring them to Christ. 
I also ask that you would help us as your people to model what this looks like, that we would, in faith and obedience, walk and trust and obey. All, of course, to the display of your fame and glory. In Christ's name we pray.